if you would open your Bibles with me to Psalm 118 this morning. You can, if you're using a pew Bible there in front of you, you can find it on page 511. Psalm 118. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Within the nation of Israel, there were a group of psalms that eventually became known as the Egyptian Hallel. Hallel meaning praise. This group of psalms were used during the annual Passover celebration to call Israel to worship their great God who revealed his kingship and his mighty power by delivering them from the hands of their oppressors in Egypt. Hence the Egyptian Hallel. They are psalms that tell a story of the Lord who is 
high above all nations, whose glory is above the heavens, but who looks favorably upon the oppressed and the downtrodden and the poor. He rescues them through the exodus, prospers them as his covenant people, even responding to their individual cries for help. And then he causes his kingdom to spread throughout the whole earth. Psalm 113 is the first in the Egyptian Hillel. Psalm 118, our passage today, is the last. While each of these psalms contribute to a different piece of that story, one theme that is common to all of them is this. The Lord, the one who has revealed himself as the God of Israel, is worthy of all of our adoration and all of our worship and all of our thanksgiving. Psalm 13, Psalm 113, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 114, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Psalm 116, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And then Psalm 118 even sets the entirety of its contents within a call to worship. So we get in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then verses 28 to 29, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. These psalms were written and read aloud to thrust the entire covenant assembly into the thankful praise of their great God. And that purpose for these psalms has not changed because God's worthiness has not changed. The covenant assembly looks a bit different since the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost to create the church, God's new covenant community full of believing Jews and Gentiles in one body. But they're all united to the same covenant Lord in whom there is no shifting or shadow of change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And these Psalms are ultimately about Him. So the Holy Spirit, through these words, still calls the covenant assembly to give thanks to the Lord. And he does so on two grounds. One, who God is. And two, what God has done. Who God is and what God has done. Verse 1 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That's the first reason we owe our thanksgiving to God. He is good. 
Now, when we think of God's goodness, we shouldn't think of His goodness in, uh, in we shouldn't think of, of this goodness in very limited ways like we often think of, of other people. For example, somebody might be a good plumber, a good carpenter, a good musician, or a good doctor, while at the same time being morally corrupt and wretched. When we say they're good, we mean that in a very limited sense. They're good insofar as the services they render. And more than that, they're good only by comparison with other people who are like them. But when we speak of God's goodness, there are no such limitations because His goodness extends to His entire being, to His whole essence, to all of His perfections, and to all He does in relation to His creation. Moreover, being God means that no other there are no other competitors by whom we can measure His goodness. Rather, who he is as God defines what is good. Meaning all that he is and all that he does is worthy of our approval. And so the psalmist calls us to give thanks to the Lord first of all because it is who he is. He is good. His goodness is part of his Godness. But notice that he adds a second reason to the first for our thanksgiving, namely, for his steadfast love endures forever. In fact, he calls the entire assembly to acknowledge the Lord's steadfast love, not only the nation of Israel and its priests, which is represented in the text by the household of Aaron, but also all of the non-Israelite God-fearers who had gathered with them. Verse 2, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Everybody is being called to give thanks because of the Lord's goodness and because of the Lord's steadfast love. And the way that the two, his goodness and his steadfast love, the way that they are connected is that the Lord's steadfast love is when his goodness goes on display in relation to his covenant people. The way they're related is that the Lord's steadfast love is how the Lord's goodness has been displayed in relation to his covenant people. In other words, if you ask the worship leader in Psalm 118, how do I know the Lord's goodness? In order that I might add my thanksgiving, he would look at you and answer, look at his steadfast love towards you. So what we see here then is that God's goodness is way more than his, his moral perfections. God's goodness is bound up with his promise-keeping Loyalty-revealing affection for his chosen people. That's essentially what steadfast love, that phrase means in your Bibles. His promise-keeping, loyalty-revealing affection for his chosen people. God's goodness for which his people give thanks is not merely some kind of abstract theological idea. 
No, the psalmist is saying God's goodness is known and experienced and and observable through God's very tangible love for his covenant people. And you even see this, if you turn with me over to Psalm 136 for a minute... The one place in the scriptures that recite the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever the most. In fact, of all of the places where this phrase is, is rendered uh, for his steadfast love endures forever. In all, in all the places in scripture, Psalm 118 and Psalm 136 make up half of them. In Psalm 136, what we see here is a continual response of the people to the worship leader with the words, for his steadfast love endures forever. But watch what is being revealed in each case as they are responding. So I'll start in verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. And then they respond, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. To the sun, uh, the sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people. Through the wilderness, to him who struck down kings and killed mighty kings. This is a very observable kind of love. I remember walking into work one day and go, after reading Psalm 136 for do- devotion and thinking, drowning kings and rulers in the Red Sea. Is love. Defeating kings, annihilating nations is God's way of revealing this is my love for you, my chosen people. His love is very tangible, whether it's in judgment or in salvation of those he's shown mercy to. So it's not just some abstract theological idea. It's grounded in his actions within history with his people. His goodness is not a hidden secret. It's been revealed through his loving acts of redemption. And we have a history in our scriptures to back it up. In fact, the worship leader in Psalm 118 goes on to illustrate... It himself to illustrate God's steadfast love by recounting what the Lord has done in the experiences of one royal servant in Israel. So he's already grounded the call to give thanks in who God is, He is good, and now he's further grounding the call to give thanks in what God has done 
Namely, His steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love isn't stagnant or sluggish or passive. It acts mightily on behalf of His people. And He's about to show us. To begin with, God's steadfast love rescues us from our distress. God's steadfast love rescues us from our distress. The servant who called us to worship in verses 1 to 4 now gives his own testimony in verse 5. He says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. And what kind of distress does he have in mind? Well, verse 10, all nations surrounded me. Verse 11, they surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. Verse 12, they surrounded me like bees. You ever seen bees swarming? Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. He's nearly dead. The scene is one in which a mob of hostile people are about to consume the servant. They are on the verge of swallowing him up. The enemies are swarming circumstances, are pressing in upon him. The snares of death are on him. And yet the Lord hears the servant's cry for help and rescues him. Verse 5 says, the Lord answered me and set me free. Literally, the Lord answered me with a spacious place. An open space was given to him. Instead of the distress crushing the servant into an overwhelmingly narrow panic, the Lord provides freedom, peace, and security, a spacious place. More than that, the Lord strengthens his servant such that he cuts off all his enemies. In fact, the image we get in verse 12 shows with what ease the Lord himself deals with the problem. They went out or were extinguished like a fire among thorns. I grew up in brush country, South Texas. You light a thorn bush on fire, it's up in a flash. Especially when you throw gas on it. <laughs> but the nations burned with rage against this servant, but their burning anger was short lived before the Lord. He snuffed them out. In a matter of seconds, he put an end to them, much like the Lord turned Sodom and Gomorrah into a heap of ashes, or drowned Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea, or swallowed up Korah's family members with the heart of the earth, or flattened the walls of Jericho, or slew the giant Goliath. So the Lord is where the servant places his confidence for rescue from his distress. The servant does not turn to the world for help when he's in distress, but to the Lord for help. He bears the name of the Lord confidently in battle and looks in triumph over those who hate him. He takes refuge in the Lord and not in man. He finds security in the Lord and not in the other princes of the land. Now how easy it would be for us to start reading ourselves into the picture all too quickly here. As if to say this is how we normally respond. To our distresses. Unshaken by the mounting stress, utter confidence in the Lord's might, cries looking for help in heaven, not placing our trust in anything else in this world. And so the Lord is bound to our allegiance to Him. 
to take care of that cranky boss or anyone else who crosses my political party or American dream. It's easy to read the psalm that way because we often have too high of a view of ourselves and not an eye for Jesus Christ. You see, this psalm is first about God rescuing a specific servant in Israel. The one who is apparently leading God's people into worship, calling them into thanksgiving. He also has enough influence in Israel that he represents the nation in battle. That's why he can speak of all nations surrounding him. He represents the people. To mess with Israel was to mess with him. We're dealing with Israel's anointed king. God's chosen one to lead and represent his people. The figure in Psalm 118 is very similar to the figure we see in Psalm 2 where the kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. The nations hate him because of his loyalty to Yahweh and his will. And so they gather around him in an attempt to defeat him and overthrow his throne and the hopes of the nations with it. If we take Psalm 118 in light of Psalm Psalm 2, and I think we should since it's introducing us to the entire Psalter. This is no ordinary Israelite. This is Israel's chosen king. And if we pay any attention to all, at all, to his sufferings and his victories throughout the Psalms, what we find is that they actually set forth expectations that we ultimately find fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The same is true in Psalm 118. The experiences of the royal servant, both his distress and his victory, set forth an expectation that God would raise up a servant in Israel who was actually so loyal, who was actually this faithful, who was actually this brave, who was actually this willing to face the distress with such prayer and not run off to the high places. That was willing to face the enemies with such trust that God would rescue him. And sure enough, Acts chapter 4 says that the nations were gathered against Jesus Christ at the cross, where he took on our ultimate enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Mark 14 tells us that Jesus became greatly distressed going to the cross. His soul was very sorrowful even unto death. And then Mark goes on to tell us that he did not turn to the world for help, but he fell to the ground and cried, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup of wrath from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus' allegiance was to the Lord, his Father alone, and whatever his will was for him, even if it meant suffering under the full brunt of God's wrath in place of his enemies, in place of his own people who had rebelled. And the Lord listened when Jesus prayed, because three days after his bloody cross where he bore the wrath of God, he walked out of the tomb victorious. Moreover, 1 Corinthians tells us that God set him at his right hand of authority in heaven where he is now putting all of his enemies beneath his feet. 
That's how the Lord rescues us, ultimately, from our distresses. Yes, God also rescued this servant in Psalm 118 from the distress of the nations. But he did it to teach Israel a lesson. He did it to teach Israel that he saves his people through his faithful, anointed king. And to give them a hope that he would raise up such an anointed king. Which the New Testament writers tell us he has in Jesus Christ. And whatever is true of Jesus is also true of the people Jesus represents. If he is victorious, not merely over nations, but also sin, death, and the devil, then so are the people who follow him. Talk about a spacious place. Talk about being set free. True freedom from our chief enemy, sin. True peace with God. True security from the world and the devil's temptations come to the one who is united to Jesus Christ by faith. They come to the one who submits to his lordship and who acknowledges with verse 6 that Yahweh is on his side, on Jesus' side. Only when we recognize that Jesus alone has the right to assert that the Lord is on his side... Because of his covenant loyalty, can any one of us say, the Lord is on my side? I will not fear what can man do to me. But once we treasure this about Jesus, we can say that every day with the same confidence the writer of Hebrews says it as he's helping a church walk through persecution. The writer of Hebrews quotes from this psalm in chapter 13, verse 6, when he says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When you treasure Jesus as your kingly representative before God, the one through whom God wins all the battles then Psalm 118, verse 6, belongs to you every hour. You even sang it earlier. Unfathomed grace joins every trial we meet. So it makes complete sense that if God's steadfast love rescues us from our distress in such an amazing way, freeing us to take absolute confidence in Him, then God's steadfast love also produces worship in the heart. That should be a second takeaway from this passage. God's steadfast love produces worshipers. Here's where we begin to see more clearly that the rescue of the servant back in verse, verses 5 to 13 is actually a rescue that benefits all of the people that he represents. Remember that only he prayed in verse 5 because of his distress. And he appears to be the only one delivered by the end of verse 13. He's even the lone voice in verse 14 that expresses worship. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. But then all of a sudden, songs break out in the camp. Glad songs of salvation are heard in the tents of the righteous, verse 15 says. 
praise for the Lord's victory through the king has come into the entire assembly he represented in battle. His victory is their victory and they rejoice. The image is one in which the king himself hears. He can hear the people celebrating. He can hear the people shouting of the Lord's victory. The Lord had already become his strength in song and now they're all singing with him. The the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. When I was growing up, I used to get in the backyard and pretend that I was pitching in Game 7 of the World Series. You know, bottom of the ninth, two outs, full count, and you let the last pitch go. And then I would pretend, you know, he struck him out. This is this is what you can this is what's going on in the background and the the peat, the noise is just it is it is saturating the camp of the people. They are shouting that the hand of the Lord does valiantly. But notice something else of the, the diversity of worship in the next couple of verses. We've already seen singing with both the king and his people, but now we also get proclamation. He says in verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. It might be better translated, I shall not die, for I shall live in order to count, recount the deeds of the Lord. In other words, that's why he's alive. His living... His livelihood is bound up in terms of joyfully recounting the Lord's works. Even the Lord's use of his previous distresses to discipline him. Even that is part of his proclamation. Verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Had one brother, Brian, was talking about how the Lord was using discipline earlier in the service. Only a true worshiper whose heart belongs to the Lord can respond this way. Don't get me wrong, the distress nearly killed the guy. He was in the midst of falling, he says. They are real distresses. He feels the weight and the pain and the angst of them. But his faithfulness through the distress has now opened his eyes to something new about that distress. The distress was never God's rejection of him, but his discipline. In fact, it was designed to increase the volume of worship in the tents of the righteous. Is that not a reason to cling to God in the midst of adversity? That through it, He might use you to increase the volume of worship among His people. I've seen several suffering families in this assembly raising their hands and bowing their face before the Lord. On Sunday morning... And my heart cannot help but sing louder 
on those mornings because of how precious the Lord is to these families and how mindful the Lord is of his people in their distress. His worship includes how we receive the trials in order to increase the volume of worship. But even more than that, he could even take all of these rescued worshipers and lead them right into the presence of God Almighty himself. That's the third takeaway. God's steadfast love leads us into God's presence. God's steadfast love leads us into God's presence. The Lord has rescued his royal servant from distress, and by so doing, he's also rescued his people from their distress and made them into true worshipers. And now he's going to lead them in a great procession up to the gates of the righteous, or what he calls the gate of the Lord in verse 20. These gates were the temple gates, the entryway into the Lord's presence, much like the gates of the, of the outer courts of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Only the righteous, only those who were loyal to Yahweh could enter these gates and enjoy his presence. We even see very similar gates on the city of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Nothing unclean is allowed to come into the city. But only those, the only ones who can enter are those who've had their robes washed and whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the gates guarded the way to the presence of the Lord. You had to be righteous to enter. Verse 20 even says, the righteous shall enter through it. And here you have the king returning through the city with a train of rescued worshipers following him. And he comes right up to the gates of righteousness and he commands them to open. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. What kind of king talks like that? There's only one. Only one who wants his people to enjoy the Lord's presence. Only one who wants his people tasting of the Lord's goodness day in and day out. Only one who's willing to lay down his life in battle to see his people singing. Verses 22 to 23 even tell us a bit of a parable of what kind of king speaks this way. He's a king who was like the stone that the builders rejected, but which has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, despite his adversity, despite his rejection... Compared here to the builders kind of tossing aside what they viewed to be some sort of insignificant stone, the Lord actually uses his rejection to secure and establish his work. Namely, to rescue a bunch of people in distress, change them into worshipers, and then bring them into his presence through the work of his kingly servant. The celebration only builds for the assembly and the rest of the chapter, mixing praise and prayer and blessing this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the king and everybody with him. 
We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. This is language taken from the priests in number six. Where the Lord caused, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. And give you peace. This was meant for the, the Aaron and his sons. And yet here, all of them get the blessing. The Lord has lifted up his light to shine on all of them who are with this king. They are a kingdom of priests here in this, before the Lord in his presence. Bind the, sacri- sac- the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Again, how could we overlook how this picture is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in leading us into God's presence? In fact, that's the connection the New Testament writers make again and again. Think of the Passion Week when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and everybody's got the palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They get that from Psalm 118. Or how often Jesus tells the parable of Israel rejecting him. And he says, don't you remember the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Like the stone the builders rejected, Jesus was rejected by men, even unto death on a cross. He was tossed aside even by his own people as a cursed criminal pretending to be their king. But because of his faithfulness to God, in spite of the rejection, God raised Jesus from the dead and made him the chief cornerstone of the church. Jesus wasn't rejected and crucified because there was anything truly wrong with him. Rather, he was rejected and crucified because there was plenty that was truly wrong with us. He was loyal to the Lord and we were not. He was faithful to the covenant and we were not. He trusted in the Lord and we had not. He honored the Lord with his life and we did not. We deserve to die and suffer the wrath of God. He did not. But he willingly underwent the rejection so that through his crucifixion, God would forgive all of our unrighteousness and all of our covenant unfaithfulness and then give to us all of his righteousness and all of his covenant faithfulness. He went to battle with sin and death, suffered the wrath of God in our place, and won so that we might take, so that we, with him, might walk up to the gates of the city of God, have him shout open, and we go in with him. Into God's very presence. Now made righteous. Now made to be a kingdom of priests with our God. Brothers and sisters, this is how God's steadfast love acted on our behalf. This is how we've observed his goodness displayed. In Christ we have tasted and seen that the Lord is in fact good. That his steadfast love towards us is forever because Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil is forever. It's not just a victory with temporary results like we see here in Psalm 118 with this particular servant. What makes Jesus so much better is that he gives us a victory that will usher us into eternal glory with his Father. When we follow Jesus as our King, nothing can ultimately stand against us. 
Nothing can ultimately win out over the omnipotent grace of our Lord working through his kingly servant. When God rescues you from your distress, when he makes you his worshipers, when he has done everything necessary to bring you into his holy presence, including giving up his own son, then his love will never fail you for an eternity. It is a loyal love. It is a steadfast love. It is a certain love, a love that is vast as, etern- as eternity, as Isaac, once, Isaac Watts once wrote. When Jesus is your king, God will and always love you and welcome you into his presence. He will, turn, he will even turn your distresses so that it ultimately works for your good and increases worship. The life, death, and resurrection of his divine son is so good and so thoroughly wrath satisfying and so thoroughly saving, so fellowship with God winning that God will always welcome you into his presence, both now as we lay hold of him by faith and on the last day when we see him face to face. And so this morning, give thanks to him. Give thanks. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise as we go out this morning. I want to pray now, and as I do, uh, with those who are taking up the offering this morning, come forward. Father in heaven, thank you so much for texts like Psalm 118, which remind us of your steadfast love in history, your patterns of loyalty revealing love towards your people which ultimately find their climax and expression in our Lord Jesus Christ and all of his person and work. I pray that he would be foremost in our minds as we gather this week with other family members and friends for Thanksgiving meals and, and that you would give opportunity for all the people in this room to recount your glorious deeds that others might know you that the volume of worship might increase in their homes and in their churches and in their cities and we ask it in Christ's name Amen